Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for joining Mike and Jeff Riding the Right for our Independence Day special. Ladies and gentlemen, please rise for our national anthem. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for joining Mike and Jeff Riding the Right for our Independence Day special. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for humoring us while we played the national anthem, but we felt there was no better way to start an Independence Day special than with playing the, the amazing national anthem of this amazing country. Um, that was the United States Marine Corps Band. Um, for anyone wondering, what, a better, what better group to play it than our own United States Marines? So as we teased out a few weeks ago um, on our uh, various social media accounts, we've obviously been off the air for a few weeks dealing with... Uh, lot going on in both of our personal lives and decided the best way to get back on the air was to do an Independence Day special and really focus on the birth of this nation and the, the many blessings that we as Americans really get to live with. So we've got a few topics today. We're going to start with a kind of a hybrid topic, which is the true story, the true history of the Declaration of Independence and the birth of the revolution. And we're going to juxtapose that with the 1619 project to bring a little bit of modernity into this, um, really to point out where the 1619 project is spreading misinformation actively to try and deceive the American people about the birth of this nation. Uh, then we're going to talk about some unsung heroes of the, of the American Revolution, guys that you may have heard of and or may have never heard of, but that don't get the credit that you hear for men deservingly so like Jefferson, uh, Washington, and Benjamin Franklin or John Adams. And lastly, we're going to talk about the idea of American exceptionalism. What is it? Where does it come from? Um, and, and why is it important to the identity of this country? Because it's an, it is probably one of the most fundamental beliefs in um, the American DNA that we are slowly losing, that we believe we cannot lose. So one last note before we jump into this, these specials are going to be at least ideally uh, an annual thing for Mike and I. We'll, we'll always change up the subjects, but we're going to have an Independence Day special, a Memorial Day special, which we obviously missed Memorial Day this year. Uh, Thanksgiving. And then we're going to do two specials about um, Christianity as well, specifically Christmas and Easter. So stay tuned because there'll be more to come. We're always going to have a, a historical kind of bent on these things and really focus on those. But let's get right into it, Mike. Are you as excited as I am? I am definitely. This is uh, probably our most researched special. 
Yeah, we have we have put more prep into this than we have ever put into anything we've done on this show. Um, and and I'm excited to get into it. So let's start with the birth of the nation, the birth of the revolution, and the true story of the Declaration of Independence. Obviously, this weekend we celebrate the Declaration of Independence, the vote by the Second Continental Congress to um, to make us a nation and, and to become independent from Britain. But a lot of the details of that story get lost in the retelling. So we're going to get very detailed, very historical. So if you're a fan of American history, this is an episode for you. If you're not, this may not be one that you enjoy as much as our current events uh, typical podcast, but we hope that you'll bear with us because I think there will be a lot in it for you. So let's start with the very first thing I want to talk about, which is kind of one of the first events that kicks off the birth of this revolution, which is the Boston Massacre in March 5th of 1770. So one of the first real moments that started the Revolutionary War, something that everyone remembers, but people forget about the details behind it. In seven, in Mar on March 5th of 1770, a riot broke out in Boston as the city's residents were being harassed and abused by British soldiers that were occupying the city. At the time, the city of Boston was populated by about 16,000 people and, the, uh, and, the, uh, and that was 16,000 colonists. And there were about 2,000 redcoat soldiers uh, stationed in Boston to keep the city under control. Well, over the course of the last five to 10 years, the American colonists had already become uh, dis disinterested in the crown and, be, and started to become very displeased with the, the rule of the crown. Um, going back to, we'll start with the Stamp Act in 1765. Um, after the end of the French and Indian Wars, the Stamp Act was levied by, the, by parliament only against colonists uh, to recoup money for, for the crown. And it was on all paper documents in the colonies. It was a, it was a tax that was directly aimed at the colonists. And it was argued by colonists at the time that the British constitution um, disallowed this. This was an unconstitutional tax because it was, and many of you will remember this phrase from middle school civics, taxation without representation. Colonists didn't have any voice in parliament. So this was a tax levied by the by parliament on the colonists on all interaction, uh, all documents, legal or otherwise, in the colonies. Um, and it, while, it was, while it was passed in 1765, it really didn't last very long. It was actually repealed in 1766 uh, due to the really bad reception it got in the colonies. Um, it started, there were riots, there were uh, protests. Um, but at, in 1776, when the colonists, when, when parliament repealed this to appease the colonists, parliament did go a step further and they made an affirmation that they had the right to tax the colonies any way they chose. Um, that the colonies could be taxed however they saw fit. So in 1766, uh, that goes away. But in 1767, so I got a, I got yeah, a question for you. So, it, so the, 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 the tax was to recoup the loss of the war. So I'm wondering, do you have a problem with the tax or the fact that there was taxation without representation? Uh, I think there's... I, I think personally, I have a problem with both. I, I everyone knows my policies on taxes, but, um, <laughs> but, and I think the colonists had a problem with both as well because the colonists felt, in many ways, that they were in 
appropriately targeted to bear the brunt of the uh, of the lost money for the crown uh, due to the French and Indian Wars. The reality is that was a war that the crown chose. That was a war that parliament chose. Um, and the colonists, by and large, through their own militias, had had to defend the colonies without much support of the British military up until the French and Indian Wars. And that was more so the British trying to control the colonies than the colonists trying to protect themselves. Now, granted, the Indian portion of the French and Indian Wars um, was very colonially driven. And I don't want to get too much into that. Um, but if you're a listener and you're interested, feel free to shoot us a note on our YouTube channel or uh, drop us a line on any of our social media channels. And we'll be happy to talk about that in the future. But not only was the, were the colonists being forced to pay all of the uh, debts from that war, they also were given no voice in the decision to, to have that war and any of the decisions um, around how land was divvied up in the colonies. They were still being governed by um, governors in many cases that were um, still loyal to the crown. Um, some mm -hmm. of the governors um, were becoming more and uh, less and less loyalists, but the crown was appointing the governors of the colonies. That's something to remember as you think about how that led into the Continental Congress. Um, so it, it's a little bit of both, Mike, but I think the biggest piece is the fact that taxation without representation had been, uh, had been banned in in Britain for hundreds of years at this point. And the colonists were essentially being treated um, like, like slave labor. And we'll get into slavery specifically, but they were being treated as the redheaded stepchild of, of the crown. Um, all of their best exports were being sent to Britain and around the empire. Um, all of the uh, all of the wealth of the new world was being used to prop up the British empire, but it was not given to the colonists and the colonists were um, essentially paying tribute to the crown. Cool. Thank you. I assumed I was gonna get an uh, answer like that, but I forget, I, I knew you wanted to elaborate. <laughs> no, perfect. Just trying, to, just trying to get you to slow down so you don't run through all your notes too quickly. No, I appreciate that. Because I could easily turn this into a history lesson because I am a fan of Revolutionary War history. But so as you think about that compared to where we've been in, in, in the course of the last hundred years and, and where we're at now with things like the 1619 Project being taught as the true founding of the country, I think it's important to understand that all the way back to the 1760s, the crown was starting to abuse the colonists. Um, you had the Stamp Act, you, you had the Townsend Acts, which I won't get into uh, as much detail about, but essentially taxes levied specifically on goods imported to the colonies and really specifically on goods that they felt that the colonies couldn't, couldn't manufacture themselves. Because prior to that, Benjamin Franklin, in a role as a dignitary, had already told uh, the British Parliament that the colony would start, the colonists would start to manufacture things for themselves because they were tired of the unfair taxes they were being charged. Um, and so the Townsend Acts were specifically things like the, uh, the Tea Act and, and others taxing goods coming into the colonies. And they led to the Boston Tea Party, which we'll get into later. But I think it's important to understand that that was going back into the 1760s. So it is. I think it's very important. Um, whereas the 1916 project, it actually said, project, six, sorry, 16, 1619 project, it actually says that the reason for the the break from from Britain was because of um, Britain's 
Britons wanting to get rid of, of slavery. Um, so what they do in the 1619 project, they, they trace it back to 1772 with the Somerset versus Stewart um, in the Mansfield judgment. Um, essentially what it, it said is that um, a slave can't be forced to, to leave um, um, British or, or Britain and be sent to, um, to the Car uh, Caribbean. Would it, um, it noted that slavery had not been authorized um, by statute um, and that it wasn't supported by common law. Um, however, uh, this ruling did not end holding slaves within England and nor did it end the participation of uh, slave trade or slavery in the British Empire. Um, the, the slave trade wouldn't end until 1807 and slavery wouldn't be abolished until 1833. But even then, it was still allowed in India and Sri Lanka. Yeah. So, I, and that's, thank you, Mike, because that, that's exactly the problem here, right? Is that we have things like the 1619 Project going on that are, are actively trying to retell our history. As we think about this special as not just a, a look back on our, our amazing history, but as a look, look forward into the future of this country and where we want to go. Um, it's important that we don't forget about how the country was really founded and what really led to the revolution, because uh, the 1619 project would reframe all of our founding as a way to protect the institution of slavery, an institution which was brought to Britain or brought to the Americas by Britain um, and an institution which was pervasive around all of the new world. And we'll get into that further as we continue. But even going back to, they, they trace the origins of the revolution to 1772. It's a factually inaccurate statement to say that because as I said, the Stamp Act in 1765, the, the Townsend Act starting in 70, uh, 1766, all of those predate that ruling in 1772. And in fact, the Boston massacre itself predates that having occurred in 1770 because that was- well, really and that's interesting. Point. Yeah, sorry. Um, so actually interesting because most history uh, at least the boston massacre is taught because everyone knows about christopher addis um, being the first person to to die um, during the american revolution in 1770 as you said so people should know that because that's that was one of the things that was drilled into you in elementary and, and middle school history so i don't understand how people can then say that um it really didn't start till 1772 yeah, exactly. There's really no, there's not really an argument you can make for it. Um, like I said, you can, you can see the underpinning starting well before that. And in 1770, the, the boiling point is reached and Bostonians are, are um, feuding with the British, the, the British forces on the streets. By the way, the Boston massacre and many of the events that led up to it are the reason for um for uh, some of our Bill of Rights, for the uh, fact that you cannot quarter, you cannot be forced to quarter soldiers in your home, um, for people who don't recall that, um, because that was what was being done. Soldiers were living in people's homes, essentially keeping tabs on them, aka uh, current day China and Hong Kong. Um, all of that predates 1772. So let's jump forward from that. Let's jump forward from 1770, where where the Boston massacre occurred, but let's talk really briefly about what happened as the out, the, the um, fallout from the Boston massacre. Well, as we all know, uh, Crispus Attucks was shot um, 
it, it's always it's been widely debated by historians for um, all the way back even to the time of the event and uh, to current day whether the soldiers were told to fire or whether they broke rank and fired. But the prevailing opinion at the time was that the word fire was heard after the shot was fired. So some British soldiers uh, in a tense situation broke ranks, fired upon the crowd, killed a colonist, and that that led to um, the news story playing out all over the place. Well, that obviously continued to grow the vitriol in the colonies and um, the dissent uh, for the crown and for British rule. Well, even at that time, I want to highlight something that is probably not known by many because it's not taught in schools very much, is that if you... We, we oftentimes see today our founders sh shown in a negative light as white men of privilege who only cared about themselves and protecting their wealth. And that's why they founded the revolution. These were men of honor, men of true character. John Adams, one of the most influential federalists, one of the most influential founders, was actually a lawyer at the time. And Mike, I don't, I'm going to quiz you real quick, not to put you on the spot, but um, do you know what role John Adams played in the aftermath of the Boston Massacre? That's all. Um, John Adams. I do not. And that's okay. Uh, I, I was going to say the Federalist play, um, Papers, but that was um, John Jay. Well, John Adams wrote the Federalist Papers as well, but that was, you know, far later for the uh, when the Constitution was being written as well. Um, yeah. So John Adams, John Adams did have a big role in the Constitution, but for the aftermath of the Boston Massacre specifically, he actually was the defense attorney for the British soldiers put on trial. Oh, really? He was. And he okay. and he did not believe that a fair trial could be held with Bostonians because he knew about the the vitriol in the in the city for British uh, for well, British that's, soldiers. It's actually interesting that you bring that up. Um because we have the, the George Floyd um, not too long ago in Minnesota. And we were talking about how you can't do it here because people are on edge. They're either super angry um, about what happened um, or they're, I, I think there's a lot of people that were very polarized either way. That, that made it very unfair. Exactly. No matter who you found. So it's, just, it's interesting that you bring that up. No, I'm glad you I'm glad you drew the parallel. So one of the reasons I bring this up for our listeners is so John Adams was a man of, of tremendous character. He chose and he was a, a outspoken proponent of independence um, at the time of the Boston Massacre, even at this point was was actively working um, to to separate from Britain, but still felt that these soldiers deserved a fair trial because of the circumstances of the of the massacre itself. And so he worked to get the judge to bring in a non-Bostonian jury. And he actually led to getting the soldiers acquitted um, due to the circumstances of the trial because witnesses, uh, multiple witnesses, uh, testimony. So he actually got them acquitted um, or got them found not guilty. And that was a man who actively believed that Britain was the enemy. Um, but was willing to do what was right, which was get these men a fair trial. So I bring that up for one, it's a, it's a fun, interesting historical fact. A lot of people probably don't know. And two, it goes to show that all of the, the uh, attacks on the, the character of the white men who founded this nation, the rich white men who founded this country, all of that is 
is overplayed and people forget about the things that these men really did and stood for. Mm-hmm. Very true. I think Thomas Jefferson is another one that you um, people tend to rip down based off of standards from today, but don't realize, uh, I don't know if you want to use the word honorable or he, it was a complex situation for him. Like he, he, he pushed for freedom of slaves while still owning slaves. Yes, and we'll get to more of that as yeah. we get to the declaration. Oh yeah, sorry, sorry. I want to. I don't want to no. jump ahead of your no, notes. No, I'm glad. I, I like the. I like the <laughs> teaser. I like the teaser. So for those of you listening, we'll get to more of that soon. So let's jump forward a few years. Three years after the Boston massacre, we had the Boston Tea Party, and the Boston Tea Party is is an event that, it, for those of you who don't know, it took place on December sixteenth, seventeen seventy three. It's an event that any listener today should know about what it is. It's one of probably the most widely taught and, and, um, and underappreciated events in the course of American history. So the Sons of Liberty, uh, led by men like uh, John Hancock, uh, Samuel Adams, um, and, and, and other well-known revolutionaries, Paul Revere, um, the Sons of Liberty met in secret throughout the course of the early days of the revolution to draw up, to bring up real grassroots desire for, for revolution and, and to drive this. But in 1773, the Dartmouth, an East India trading company ship, arrived at port in Boston with about 90,000 pounds of tea, which in today's money was would be worth about a million dollars. And tea... Uh, at the time, what was one of the hottest commodities in, in the colonies. Uh, it was heavily taxed by the, by, uh, the Townsend Act and was also heavily uh, bootlegged. So something that uh, people also don't know, Samuel Adams and, and uh, John Hancock, two of the richest men in the colonies, two of the most influential founders, also two of the largest bootleggers at the time, uh, made a lot of their wealth bootlegging tea. Um, and, and obviously you'll see, you'd see that happen again, 200 years later when, um, the Kennedys grew their wealth in bootlegging liquor. Uh, so, uh, kind of a, an interesting theme there in American history that, uh, Americans find a way to be resourceful and to <laughs> get around unfair and unjust laws. So at the time, bootleg tea had actually gotten to the point where it was almost more and more expensive than taxed tea, ironically enough, but many still purchased it. Um, on principle, rather than purchasing uh, tax tea, simply because they did not want the money going to the crown. They would rather pay more money to line the pockets of bootleggers than to line the pockets of the British. Mm-hmm. So when the Dartmouth arrived in port, um, the, there, was, there were meetings held in Boston and hundreds, if not thousands of Bostonians agreed to refuse to pay the tax and refuse to unload the ship. They wanted it sent back to Britain. Well, Governor Hutchinson refused to uh, un- refused to send the ship back and and demanded and ordered that the tax be paid and the ship be be emptied. Well, later that evening, m- members of the Sons of Liberty, led by uh, men like Samuel Adams, uh, dressed as Native American Indians, boarded the ship and over the course of around three hours, dumped all of the tea in the harbor. Again, not a story that many of you haven't heard. I'm sure all of you have heard it, but. That act was important because of two things, the defiance for an unjust law and the fact that it represented uh, a 
a secret group standing up and starting to make itself more publicly known. The Sons of Liberty had met in secret in taverns and in inns around uh, the colonies. And they were starting to stand up and now make a stand and say, we are no longer going to tolerate this and, and we will um, rise up against the crown. Now, what's some interesting facts about this before I stop talking, Mike, and, and, and break it out. Again, many of the founders here, very honorable men that George Washington, Ben Franklin were active, actually avidly opposed to the actions of the Sons of Liberty in this case, but publicly uh, not only condoned, but endorsed the Boston Tea Party because of what, what it represented and because of its importance in gaining support for the move for independence that they knew was so important. But privately, Washington was uh, very displeased with what he found uh, to be dishonorable actions and and the destruction of private property because it was not the property of the crown. And Benjamin Franklin uh, believed that the uh, East India Trading Company should be reendorsed or should be reimbursed for their losses and actually offered to do it himself if need be because he felt that the destruction of their private property uh, was a mistargeted attack on, attack on the crown. But again, all of those founders stood up for what they knew was right. And, and um, the, mo the meaning of the message was not lost as they talked about the, the targeting of that message. So Mike, did I lose you? Did you freeze or are you still here? Might've lost Mike right before he spoke up, which is <laughs> disappointing. So I'll continue to, to tell a little bit about the Boston Tea Party um, as we wait on Mike to join us back. But another interesting fact about the Boston Tea Party is while we know some of the participants, because we know some of the history of the Sons of Liberty through different biographies of men like, men like Samuel Adams, John Hancock and others, we don't know uh, the most of our participants in the Tea Party today, most of those names have remained throughout the 200 plus year history of our nation have remained, uh, have, re have remained secret. So while the, uh, the signers of the declaration and some of the players and other aspects of our history are well known, um, that momentous event is still largely shrouded in mystery. So while we wait on my, my triumphant co-host to return, uh, let's talk a little bit about the next big events in the Revolutionary War, the shot heard around the world. Any of you who are uh, on the older generation may remember Schoolhouse Rock and the shot heard around the world has its own song. Uh, but that was the first real shots of the American Revolution. Now you can make the claim that the Boston Massacre is the first shot of uh, fired in the revolution and, and many do. Um, by citing that the Crispus Attucks was the first to die in the revolution. But the shot heard around yeah. the world was really the first shots. So, but Mike is back. So before I jump right into uh, the next stage of the history, let's spend a little bit more time on the Boston Tea Party. Because Mike, I know you had some technical difficulties and, and I could tell you wanted to say something about the Boston Tea Party. So please feel free. Yeah. So I had a question for you, Jeff. Do you know who owned those ships? Uh, I believe they were owned by American privateers. I believe they were American made and American owned ships, if I recall. They were. Um, so, no, the being done, nothing was damaged on that ship. Uh, you're going to need to repeat yourself. We're having some technical glitches again with you, Mike. Oh, man. 
That sucks. Um, so I was saying that, did you know that nothing else was uh, damaged on that ship? I did not know that. I did not know that. Yeah. And another uh, interesting thing is that the padlock that they that they broke was replaced the next day. So only the tea was dumped into the river. None of the crew or none of their none of the other property or, or goods were damaged. That is interesting. See, and that is a fact I didn't know. So thank you for sharing. And again, it goes to show that it was about the message more than about the actual destruction of property. This was not, these were, I want to differentiate the massacre, the Tea Party from the riots we saw, the Black Lives Matter and George Floyd riots during the summer of 2020. Because I think it's an important distinction. Go for it, Mike. Yeah, so... I, I I saw a lot of um, people on Facebook saying to those of you who are angry about the destruction of private property, um, of things being looted and, and blah, blah, blah. Uh, just remember that our, our country was founded on the Boston um, Tea Party. Uh, I was like, well, yes, we, there was a same parallel in that the private property was destroyed, but it was private property related to tea. You know, it wasn't destroying. We, we seem to be having some more. All right, you're back. Go ahead. Oh, man. Maybe you should go since I'm having technical difficulties. I'll just right. try to chime in if you can hear me or not. <laughs> no, that's it. You're, you're doing. Uh, we can hear you good now. But but yeah, I, it, Mike's point is exactly right. It's to compare the two is very different. Yes, the East India Trading Company was a private entity. However, they had also been given exclusive ability to trade tea in the Americas by the British crown um, and to charge an extreme tax on that tea based on, based on unfair taxes. So yes, it was a destruction of private property. And as I mentioned, some of our founders even uh, were displeased with that destruction of private property and, and offered to pay out of their own pocket to reimburse. The difference is this, is the, the act was very fundamentally focused on the specific offender that was causing the strife in the colonies. It was, it was meant to send a very clear message. And if the looting only occurred in uh, certain businesses that were, if, if you said that the riots were focused on sending a message to the government and the looting wasn't of a target for uh, flat screen TVs or but, AutoZone or whatever like that, you know, but it was, it was something more targeted specifically to uh, like maybe looting of uh, guns to say that you're, you're making it uh, too hard for, for people in these communities to defend themselves, something like that. Then maybe you could have said yeah, the see, message was, there was a message to the government. Yeah, that's see, not that, what the tea party was. And right, that's, not, right. that's not, you know, it's different than what Antifa was doing. Exactly. So that would have made more sense. I still wouldn't agree with it or even, um, like a, the destruction of like police property that m- would make more sense. And I, obviously they, they did that, but they were also just doing mindless destruction. Exactly. But I think if, if it was more focused, um, I would have still disagreed with it, but it would have made more sense to me. Yes, I agree with you. I would disagree with the destruction of public property as Washington and Franklin did. However, I'd understand it if 
as you said, if it was specifically aimed at destroying police precincts because you believe that's the issue, you're sending a message, at least that's got a point. Or if you want to flip it and say private uh, private property, not part of the government, the only other way you could do it is if you said, we're against the lockdowns and we're going to loot we're going to not loot because that's the other thing is they weren't stealing this property. They destroyed it to send a message. So we're going to destroy property at an Amazon warehouse. Again, not supporting or condoning that. But mm -hmm. if you were saying, well, you're destroying small businesses by locking us down, but you're not locking down these big businesses that are uh, given, getting government kickbacks, then you would have been sending a point. That's what, that's the difference between the revolutionaries and the modern day riots we're seeing. Though one is aimed at aimless destruction, one is aimed very specifically at sending a message that says we are not going to tolerate this treatment anymore. Mm -hmm. And both may you can argue that both were improper ways to go about sending that message. And as I said, some of our founders did make that argument. The difference is you cannot argue argue that they are the same. There you go. Perfect. So let's jump to the shot heard around the world. As I said before. The Boston Massacre, in many ways, you could argue, was the first shots of the Revolutionary War. But the shot heard around the world um, for fans of Schoolhouse Rock, uh, it, it is really the first true shots of the, of the Revolution where there was actually fighting on both sides. The battles of Lexington and Concord occurred on April 18, 1775. And what, they, what those battles were was really the first two battles of the Revolutionary War, when hundreds of British troops marched towards Concord, Massachusetts to seize arms and ammunition stockpiled legally by the colonists. So when you think about gun buybacks, and again, to pull this full circle, when you think about gun buybacks, you think about disarming the citizenry, this is where people like Mike and myself say, it's not about um, it's not about hunt. The second amendment is not about hunting. It's not about self-defense from criminal. It's about defense from the government because that's the exact tactic the British used that the colonists, that the founders saw in action and why they said this can never be allowed to happen because they saw it happen. And they said, we have to be able, we have to prevent this because they saw at the battle of Concord where the British troops were marching to seize weapons that the colonists had legally formed taken so that they couldn't form militias with them. So as they marched towards Concord, Massachusetts, they were stopped in Lexington. And in Lexington, they were met with an armed resistance of roughly 70 patriots. It's not known the exact number, but somewhere around 70 patriots is widely accepted to be the number. At Lexington, someone fired a shot and the shot heard around the world. That shot, again, is not known whether it was fired by the British or by the, um, by the revolution, but it ended with uh, the battle ended with eight colonists killed, eight more wounded, and a single wounded redcoat. So after that, the, the British continued on, and they continued to Concord, where they fought more colonists along the way, killing two, wounding another uh, few, and losing three of their own number. After both of those skirmishes, they failed to disarm the American colonists. They failed to capture John Hancock and Samuel Adams, who they were actually on their way to arrest for uh, acts of sedition against the crown um, and acts of treason. And they uh, fled back to Boston um, and where they met and encountered more Minutemen along the way and suffered more casualties. So these are this event is hugely significant as it's the first time the, the Minutemen militias really started to fight back against the British colonies. 
mm-hmm. or excuse me, against a Brit against the British in the colonies. Um, it's also important because uh, Mike, do you know what Paul Revere's significance was in those in that situation? Um, was it one by land, two by sea? Uh, it, it was, and that's uh, it, it, the British are coming. And Paul mm-hmm. Paul Revere's fabled midnight ride occurred on April eighteenth, seventeen seventy five, um, for the during the battles of Lexington and Concord. So what he actually did was he set out when he uh, when Paul Revere uh, was um, he, he set out to warn Samuel Adams and John Hancock specifically that they were being targeted for arrest in Lexington and um, and then was going to continue on as he saw the British troops moving on to Concord to warn those in Concord. Now, it's believed he never actually said the phrase the British are coming, but whether he did or not, it's unimportant because Paul yeah. Revere's Well, the thing thing that with that is at the time they all there everyone was British. There, there was no America at the time. So yelling the British are coming it wouldn't make any sense at all in my opinion. That's a fair point. And that that's actually a very fair point. Now you might argue that the colonists may not have referred to themselves as British at that point. Um, but that's debatable as well. So exactly. fair point, Mike. But so it's interesting to note also that that Paul Revere was captured during his midnight ride and arrested, and he never actually made it to Lexington. Mm-hmm. Or excuse me, he never he never reached Concord after reaching Lexington. Excuse me. So he made it to Lexington. John Hancock and Samuel Adams obviously evaded arrest. Um, the Battle of Lexington ensued, and Paul Revere didn't make it to Concord, but his message did. His his message had already been. Uh, had made its way and the the colonists in Concord were able to mount their defense and defend that stockpile of arms and, and effectively um, send the British back where they came from in Boston. So Paul Revere, well, while he may not have made it all the way there, was one of the most important uh, and influential figures in the battles of Lexington and Concord. And, and obviously everyone knows about Paul Revere's midnight ride. So I wanted to highlight that because it's an event that people don't always realize that those two events are, are one and the same, but they are. Mm-hmm. So Mike, before, before I move on with a little bit of um, a little bit of revolutionary war history on the battles of Lexington and Concord uh, or trivia, I should say, um, <laughs> Would you like to, to make any modern day uh, statements about, about the impacts of those events? The impacts of those events. Um, or how they tie to 1619 or really anything. I just want to give you that chance <laughs> because you've been, you've been cutting in and out. So I want to I stop while you seem to have good technical connection. Oh, that makes sense. Um, nothing really comes to mind. Um, I, I do want to say that I watched um, National Treasure a few days ago. I made my wife watch both of them, and that, <laughs> that pops up a lot. Um, Paul Revere's writing the history of America. Um, to talk about the 1619 Project, just nothing really specific to that. Um, but I guess why I have connection, I, I do think it's interesting that they chose 1619 um, to start the uh to start when America was founded, because that's that's actually wasn't the first time slaves made it to America. Um, so obviously we know about Columbus um, sailing the ocean blue. Um, little known fact is he wasn't trying to prove that the Earth was flat; 
he everyone knew that the earth was actually a globe at that point he thought that the maps were, were not at the proper scale so he thought it would be faster to go west than having to go around um africa and as, uh, as and Mike, I'm sure you know this, and I'm sure all of our listeners know this as well. The reason Native Americans were called Indians um, was because he was trying to save sail to the Indies and believed he had landed in the uh, in the West Indies. Yes, very true. Yes, but so his expedition was to go to the Indies and also to to try to bring back gold and, and things like that. Um, but obviously he didn't, he didn't find any. Um, so instead it, he, he started bringing back slaves instead. So he's actually known, um, for those who do, who understand the Atlantic slave trade as the father of the, of the Atlantic slave trade. So it would have made more sense to start that America started when Columbus made it, um, over to the Americas. Um, we can also talk about, um, Spanish, um, so there's a Spanish expedition um, to South Carolina, which actually failed due to a African slave revolt in 1526. Um, then there's also the lost colony of Roanoke um, in 1586 that also was believed to have slaves because um, Sir Francis Drake and his cousin John were estimated to have about 1,200 to 1,400 slaves. So I thought, I thought it was interesting to use the 1619 project. The only reason I can think of is because it was a British colony, which, in my opinion, kind of wipes out all of the history of slavery before that. So, you know, the, the founders, or not the founders, the, the writers of this complain about a washing of history. And we might have lost Mike again, but as he was saying, the founder, the, the writers of the 1619 Project complain about a whitewashing of history, uh, a, a retelling by the, by the winners, uh, as it were. Um, first and foremost, it's, it's important to realize that history is always told by the winners. History is told by the victors. That's a, that's a statement that's held true for time eternal. Um, but more importantly, it's important to remember that they, they are simply... Um, for lack of a better phrase, blackwashing history uh, to try and eliminate the realities of things that happened pre-British colonization, pre-Revolutionary um, War era. Because again, the according to the uh, writers of the 1619 Project, the first real emphasis on revolution came in 1772 when the colonists believed that they were going to be forced to free their slaves because it was it was becoming in vogue in Britain, which didn't actually happen for another 65 or so years. Um, but furthermore, uh, ignores the fact that we had other events going on prior to that where the colonists were really already starting to ramp up for, for war. The Sons of Liberty were already very active prior to that. So... Uh, as Mike said, a whitewashing of history is yeah. is is one perspective. But by the same token, these writers are are effectively trying to blackwash history and, and erase reality uh, and retell events that fit a narrative rather than fit a, a chronological and accurate timeline. Right. So, can you guys hear me again? Yes. Cool. So before I drop out again, um, and that's that's the issue I have with, with critical race theory. Um, that's kind of been in news a lot too. You know, 
I, and I think Jeff agrees that we should be trying to tell the true history as, as best as possible. And I think we, we also both agree that history is told by the victors. So there's, there's always a, a bias or a perspective in the history that you learn about. Um, because well, a lot of times the losers aren't there to, to tell the story. My issue with critical race theory um, is the fact that they are just switching the narrative, say, or changing their perspective. They're not actually looking for the truth. So I'm just keep it short and sweet. So make sure I don't <laughs> drop out. Thank anything. you. I appreciate that. One last comment on, on that before, and we'll, we'll get back into our own history, American history lesson is it's funny that you point out that history is told by the victors often because the losers are no longer there to tell the story. In the case of the Revolutionary War, that's another reason that you have to ignore the claims that history has been whitewashed because the British are around and have been around. And, and while America won its independence, the British Empire did not cease to exist for another 200 years. Yeah, very true. So the British Empire maintained its, its position as the strongest and largest empire on the planet for and a significant, more like another 150 years after the 1770s, but they, they continued to be strong for a long period of time. So their perspective on the history has not been lost. Mm-hmm. All right. So let's jump, uh, Mike, should we move, should we move along to, uh, well, let me, let me throw out a piece of trivia for our listeners, for yourself. Something I found interesting as well, because I wasn't familiar with this. Do you know where the phrase the shot heard around the world came from? Hmm. I do not. All my history knowledge comes from National Treasure, and that was not in those movies. <laughs> so it was not Schoolhouse Rock, and it was not National Treasure. Um, the, the phrase itself was actually coined by Ralph Waldo Emerson in 1837 in the Concord Hymn, um, really? in the dedication of a war monument. And he wrote this stanza in the Concord Hymn, which, which uh, coined the term. By the rude bridge that arched the flood, their flag to April's breeze unfurled. Here once the battle embattled farmers stood and fired the shot heard round the world. And he was obviously speaking about the battles of Lexington and Concord. Um, but that is the first time that phrase was used to describe that event. Hmm. So oh, piece of oh. uh, Revolutionary War trivia for you. Cool. I'll write to Disney to make sure they include that in the National Treasure 3. Very important. I'm pretty sure I'm I, I'm pretty sure my notes are more well researched than that movie. Um could be. Could that's a it could be. Um but yours weren't produced by Jerry um, Brockheimer, so I think which one I think we know which one wins. Yeah, clearly. Uh this one. <laughs> so now we're up to say that that takes you to April 18th, 1775, but now we're caught up to 1776, the year in question, the year of our independence, the most important year in the history of humankind in, in many ways. The only, uh, the only more important events in the history of humanity were the resurrection of Jesus Christ, obviously, um, and the uh, Noah emerging from the ark. After mm. those events, after those events, probably the foundations of the United States of America. Yeah, I was going to say something sarcastic, but those are also related to America. So, <laughs> <laughs> but but seriously, the the seven we're up to seventy seventy six now in our history. Um, before we jump into one of the most probably underappreciated but most influential founders, that is probably can I would call him the forgotten founder, and other historians have agreed with me, Thomas Paine. 
Um, let's pause here for a moment. And uh, in, in true uh, after school special style, let's pause here for a break and talk again about the 1619 Project and the impacts that American capitalism have on slavery, on the foundations of this country, and what they really have versus what's being uh, spread as propaganda to our youth nowadays. And then we'll get back to our telling of the birth of this nation. Cool. So I forgot to mention, but the 1619 Project is actually like a, a bunch of different essays and short stories, um, photography. Um, I think it's about 100 pages total from the New York Times that dropped in 2019, the 400th anniversary um, of when America was founded. Um, so I read two of the articles, The Idea of America by Nicole Hannah-Jones, which is, she's like the editor and the kind of the main person behind it. And then I also read another one um, called American Capitalism is Brutal. You can trace that to the plantation by Matthew Desmond. So one thing I noticed about the 1619 Project, at least from the two articles I read, was that 80% of it was true. But the 20% that wasn't true is like the main theme of, of those articles, which mean, which kind of makes the entire article worthless. So for the American capitalism is brutal, you can trace it that back to the plantation. The reasoning is that that capitalism or American capitalism is founded in the slave plantation um, because of uh, record keeping and basic accounting which doesn't really make sense because capitalism <laughs> it isn't based off of the, the method which you use to record information. Um, capitalism, um, free market capitalism, laissez-faire capitalism, is the idea that um, an individual owns the, the right to their labor. So capitalism is directly opposed to any type of system that has slavery in it because th that individual doesn't own the rights or their labor. Um, so that, 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 so this article um, by definition of what capitalism is, is already wrong. Um, but I wanted to, to read a, a certain part or, or read a few excerpts. So one, they said, when an accountant depreciates an asset to save on taxes or when a mid-level manager spreads spends an afternoon filing and filling in rows and columns on an Excel spreadsheet, they are repeating business procedures whose roots twist back to slave labor camps. Um, since he's saying about modern uh, accounting. However, modern accounting goes back a few hundred years before that and goes back to Venice. So, you know, that's another issue that they have wrong. A very fundamental um, part that once you, if you get that wrong, then entire article needs to be thrown or thrown out, at least the, the main thing. Um, I'm trying to think of anything else that was interesting. Oh, so yeah, they also talked about how the plantation, um, there was a, a bubble created, um, essentially because where slaves were, were used as property, they were leveraged to, to get uh, money um, from banks and uh, plantation owners would take slaves and leverage them to multiple banks at the same time. So you, you were pretty much selling your property to multiple people, uh, which create, kind of cre created a bubble that obviously burst. 
but they linked that and that speculative um, accounting or financing to the stock market crash of 1929 or the recession that was uh, about 13 years ago or whatever recession is going to occur soon. Um, the issue with that is the first recorded um, bubble was in the 1600s um, under the from Dutch. It was the Dutch tulip um, bulb market. And essentially what happened is speculation again drove the tulip bulbs up to the extremes, you know, right at the peak. What's happening is like a, a rare tulip bulb would actually sell for like six times an average person's salary. And obviously that failed. So it's just a lot of things in, in this article that are don't really make any sense. Uh, one final thing to point out is that he talked about how the the harshness of slavery is what drove up the production. So he points out that in the six years leading up to the Civil War, um, the average or daily amount of cotton picked per enslaved worker increased 2.3% a year. So over those six years, um, it went up 400%. He attributes that to the abuse that slaves um, were, were under. But almost every other historian that's actually you know worth their weight um, are aware that the increase in, in cotton came from the, not, not biodiversity, but improving which cottons you're using and, and um, the strain and and cross-trainings and things like that. Which it also it, it also had to do with the development of the cotton gin by Eli Whitney in the early 1800s. Yes, yes, it is. Um, but I was I was talking about specific. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So you were able to the pool. You're able to process and pick a lot more cotton when the cotton gin was created, which that article completely ignores because it assumes that you just whipped them harder and they pick more cotton. The cotton gin didn't. The cotton gin was created during that 60 year buildup to the Civil War, and so that increase became also was part of the development of industrialization of tools because you had the cotton gin, which did not exist prior to that. Um, so yeah. it's- Well, sorry, there's, there's just one more interesting thing that he says is it's either him or uh, Nicole in their article, but they talk about how um, cotton was like the, the foundation of the American economy and equating um, to 50 to 60% of the GDP to the American economy. Um, from cotton. The issue is the, you're making like a basic um, economic mistake. Um, so for, for GDP, you count the final product, which would not obviously makes sense. Like if you were buying a car, you count or trying to count the car, you count the car, you don't count all the different components of the car as well as the price of the car, because that's baked into the final price of a car. Essentially, that's what they're doing. It's like they count the cotton. Um, they count the the land, um, they count the, the slaves and all this type of things for um, that was built into um, the, the GDP. So in that sense, if you count it correctly, it only equates to about 5% of the GDP of, of, uh, of America at that time or of the British colonies, depending on what, what area you pick from. It also, it also ignores the fact that um, tobacco was also one of the largest cash crops in, in the Americas uh, during the time of the, if you're, if you're trying to, let's tying this back to the mistelling of our history of our revolution, right? Tying it back to that, because that's, that's really one of the foundations here saying that, well, America was founded when slaves came over because that's the foundation of America is slavery. Um, 
cotton was also not one of the primary cotton was a primary cash crop, uh, mm-hmm. but so was tobacco. Um, yes. Tobacco was a very big product. And, and so you ignore that because it doesn't fit in your narrative. Now, tobacco is also, again, farmed by slaves and things like that, but it doesn't fit into the narrative about abuse and other things because the production of tobacco did not increase the way the production of cotton did. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so you ignore that to, to tell this narrative. The other thing, Mike, that I, I like that you pointed out here is the idea of speculative trading, that that was a foundational element of the American economy driven by slavery and again, an underlying theme behind the revolution because, and leading up to the civil war, because um, as America felt that we had to protect our desire, our ability to hold slaves to maintain speculation and things, um, that that's uniquely American. It's not. Speculation, as you pointed out, uh, the Dutch bulb trade, uh, tulip bulbs, uh, but it also existed in um, exploration um, all of the exploration to the new world was speculative trading, um, was done by the Spanish crown, the French crown, the British crown, the Portuguese, um, all were done as speculation and well, you would essentially buy, you'd buy shares in, in a, an explore, uh, in, ex- in a, uh, expedition and that expedition would return you wealth if it found gold or crops or things of that nature. Um, And that was the reason behind it because it was not entirely funded by the crown. Those were also funded by private entities. Yeah, very true. I'm glad you brought up the, um, the other, other um, countries. Um, So it's kind of jumping around a bit, but going back to the Atlantic slave trade. um, And I talked about how the 1690 project is focused on um, Britain. So, the British are brought um, about 260,000 slaves to North America. Um, in total, there's about 400,000 slaves in North America. However, the amount of slaves that were moved during the Atlantic um, slave trade was 12.5 million, um, which the majority went to um, the, were moved by the Portuguese and went down to South America. So I think uh, it's, interesting to me that the nation that got kind of the least amount of slaves is the one that's being defined by slavery, whereas South America and Mexico aren't. Yeah. And one last point on that before we kind of move on, because some of our listeners, you may be wondering, why are we bouncing around on slavery and things like that? Because this would be a better topic if we talk civil war. And and don't worry, we will, we will do that. But the main reason we want to talk about this is because the 1619 Project actively aims to teach our children a different version, a, a false version, a false narrative of the found the founding of this country. It aims to ignore true history. And so that's why we're focused on kind of disputing that as we tell the true story of the Declaration of Independence and of our independence in this country. Um, so, but on that last point, going to the topic of slavery and Portugal and other countries, Again, if you follow the logic of the 1619 project that the, f- the revolution was only fought to protect slavery, which it wasn't, which we've proven, um, then you should also look at the fact that the British abolished slavery in the mid 1800s and about the 1830s. Um, yep. America, 1833. America abolished slavery in the 1860s. Portugal did not abolish slavery until 1869. 
So again, if the, if the issue is slavery, if that's what you want to fight about, then the greatest uh, consumer of African slaves was Brazil by way of Portugal. And that did not end until 1869. Um, and if you want to look at how it impacted uh, America in its drive for the revolution, slavery wasn't abolished in Britain or in British colonies for another 60 years after the Revolutionary War was fought. The revolution was about something far different. It was about forming a nation that was truly exceptional, truly different than everything else. And one of the first people to talk about that was Thomas Paine. So that's where we're going to go next is we're going to jump into 1776, January of 1776 specifically, and talk about common sense, a 47 page pamphlet, which at the time was similar to what you'd consider like a, a paperback book today, um, that really in many ways was more influential in driving people to back the cause of independence than the declaration itself. The declaration of independence, one of the greatest documents ever written by human hand. Uh, I, I don't dispute that fact. However, common sense is much more intense um, and, and probably more influential. In a time where marketing wasn't a thing and where things didn't go viral, uh, by the end of the war in 1782, it's believed there were around 500,000 copies of common sense in circulation around the colonies or around actually the newly formed United States of America. Um, the, uh, the, and that was, it was really the talk of the colonies in 1776. It was a modest essay penned by a man that was not wealthy, that had not grown up rich, and it was a British immigrant. So let's talk a little bit about Thomas Paine. Thomas Paine was unlike John Adams, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, was not a man of wealth, was not a man from the colonies. He was born in English and he was born poor. He spent his life as a struggling Englishman and ultimately came to America to be one of the first people to really experience what you'd consider now the American dream, pulling himself up by, the boot, by his bootstraps. Um, and in 1776, was inspired to write Common Sense by Benjamin Rush and Benjamin Franklin. And he wrote his essay about a couple of things. One was the idea that America should form a new nation conceived in liberty. And another was that the, the very basic common, quote unquote, common sense that underpinned why America should be a sovereign nation. So Paine made a strong economic and, and uh, political case for why America had the ability and right to defend and develop itself based on the richness of the land and the industriousness of its citizens. He was one of the first people who really penned a conception of a new nation and a new government. While, while other founders had been discussing these ideas, they, they hadn't been published and shared um, prior to common sense in, in many ways. So one of the one quote I want to read from Common Sense that I think is really important for people to understand when we talk about American exceptionalism and the idea of this new nation, Paine wrote in Common Sense, we have every opportunity and every encouragement before us to form the noblest, purest constitution on the face of the earth. We have it in our power to begin war the world over again. A situation similar to the present hath not happened since the days of Noah until now. The birthday of a new world is at hand, and a race of men 
perhaps as numerous as all Europe contains, are to perceive their portion of freedom from the event of a few months. So Thomas Paine really truly understood and, and believed that America could start the world in a different way, could conceive of a concept of government that was different than existed on the earth. And his, his correlation to Noah there was not by mistake. Um, many of our founders were, were truly devout men of God and believed that America offered an opportunity to form a nation devoted to God and devoted to the freedom of men and the freedom and liberty that God had endowed its people with or his people with, because around Europe that had gone away, you had her, uh, hereditary monarchies that had been in power for hundreds of years and America could be different. It had the true unique opportunity to be different. And he also mentioned in, in great detail the amount of wealth that America had was greater than any other country on earth. He actually, there's a portion of common sense in which he talks about the amount of money it takes to outfit ships in the British Navy and how no nation other than Britain previously had the amount of wealth it took to have a Navy as powerful as the British Empire. But then he goes on to talk about America has that wealth. We have more timber, more, more tar, more... Um, gold than any other country on earth. We can do things that no one else could do if we simply set ourselves aside from Britain and everyone else. So I'll pause there for a moment because I really want to spend some time talking about common sense because it's probably one of the most fundamentally important things we think about. We think about the foundations of this country and it's oftentimes mis... Uh, it, I wouldn't say misunderstood, but it's, it's not given the due or the credit it deserves for its impact on the revolution. Yeah, I, was, I would say that. I just think people only know it by title and that actually haven't read it. Exactly. A lot. I, I think there's very few, school doesn't have you read common sense. Um, it's not something, it's 47 pages long and it's written in old English. People probably it's, haven't read it, but I highly recommend yeah. it. Yeah. Well, it's stupid because they, they make us read Shakespeare. That's true. And honestly, I would, I would say to any of our listeners out there, I would consider common sense as important and as influential as the Federalist Papers and as the Anti-Federalist Papers. You, you read some of those select excerpts when you're in history class, typically. And, and some people uh, like Mike and myself may read, you may have read them. Um, I recommend if you haven't before, read Common Sense. It's publicly available on the internet. Um, if you can, go buy a printed copy before it starts to get edited by some kind of woke activists. So yeah, I was getting ready to say on uh, Amazon, you can buy Common Sense for $6.99. And it's worth so. the $7. It's worth, it's worth a read. It's very interesting. And again, while, while the phrase American exceptionalism is not, uh, exceptionalism is not present in the de text of Common Sense, in my mind, this is the first true genesis of that idea. The idea that America is exceptional amongst the rest of the world, that we are different than the rest of the world and have the ability and, and um, opportunity to be the greatest nation founded on this earth because of our uniqueness. That came from common sense. I agree. And then just so everyone knows, the Federalist Papers unabridged edition is 1699 on Amazon. Thank you, Mike. Mm -hmm. And you also can buy the Constitution and Declaration of Independence for 695. So you can have very important documents for the 30 bucks. Yeah, and I, and I recommend to all of our listeners, this is not, uh, we are not getting paid to say this, buy them in print 
before you can no yes. longer find them on the internet. Yes. Because it's too. an alarmist thing to say, but it's not far away. Yeah. It's the thing is if you, if you were to read it online and then read it online three years from now, you won't notice if a word or two changed that can fundamentally change the entire meeting or something, but you can't change a book once it's printed. Exactly. So, so yeah, I, I agree um, in buying books. So I've, I've read the Federalist Papers, but the reason I know how much because I, I bought it earlier this week because I wanted a, a physical copy. So for those- I, I bought them a few months ago myself. The Federalist Papers, the Constitution, Declaration of Independence, the Mayflower Compact, a few other documents yeah. that are important historical so, documents and text. It's blurring it out so we cannot see it, but right. <laughs> that's the only problem with virtual backgrounds, Mike. <laughs> Very true. Hold it really close to your head, it might work. Yeah, then that throws things off. So, one yeah. second, let me, uh, I'll turn this off for one second. I just have a, uh, a blind. Now you blind. all know where Mike's secret compound is. Yes. So, the Federalist Papers is what I bought. Like I said, 16 bucks. I also bought um, this Constitution. Yes. Constitution Declaration of Independence um, for $6.95. And, and then, actually also complained that that same book also complains it contains the Mayflower Compact and some other uh, documents as well. Um, yes, it does. Actually, I can I can read off what it has. Because I think you bought the same copy I have. Since it's right in front of me. So yeah, Constitution of the United States, Declaration of Independence, Mayflower Compact, Articles of Confederation, Washington's Farewell Address, Emancipation Proclamation, and Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. All that in 100 pages. And then in doing my research for the 1619 project, I also bought, I bought this, the 1619 project, a critique. Oh, I will have to check that out. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, so as you'll hear from Mike and I multiple times throughout the next, however many years we were able to do this, uh, by physical media, things are getting more and more uh, corrupted. And that's not just public, uh, you know, that's not just historical texts. Go and buy physical movies too. I mean, I know that it's easier to stream them, but it's it is. But all your stuff gets screwed with. Yes, and I also wanted to say that sometimes you don't actually own it. There's, there's a few um, rulings about that. About Amazon. everything on Prime, you do not technically own. Yes, thank you. So I wanted to point that out. And since we're nervous, I also want to point out that Zack Snyder's um, trilogy has gone on pre-order. Um, it was sold out when I went, went to go find it. Um, so hopefully they bring in more copies. They better, I will be buying that. All right. <laughs> so back to, thank you, Mike. So back to Thomas Paine, as I said, I recommend reading Common Sense, but some facts about Thomas Paine and then some facts about Common Sense that I think are important to understand if you really want to understand the birth of this nation. First of all, Thomas Jefferson, the, the writer of the Declaration of Independence, largely viewed as one of the most eloquent men uh, in the in, of the Founding Fathers, believed that Thomas Paine was actually the greatest writer of the revolution. Um, he felt that Thomas Paine's humble background was, gave him a, a voice that was much more relatable to the masses and yet articulate and refined enough to carry the weight that all the rest of the founders had. So Thomas Jefferson actually held Tom, uh, uh, Thomas Paine in high regard and uh, referred to common sense when writing the Declaration of Independence. While the Declaration yeah. of Independence was the formal notice to Britain that we were no longer British, common sense in many ways was the rallying cry for Americans to uh, 
fight the fight for independence and to really fight the war because it was again more publicly sold than um than the declaration of independence the declaration of independence was not as wide widely publicized at first as common sense common sense was talked about all over the colonies in in early 1776 before the continental congress even convened mm-hmm. yes it's interesting that you say that he was able to more relate to the people because that's actually what they have said about um, Donald Trump, because he wasn't a politician. He he spoke like a regular American, even though he's you know, one of the richest men in America. So I, I thought that was interesting. That, that is interesting. That, that is an interesting point. Mike. Like he, he has a, a golden toilet, but yet, yet somehow he, he was still relatable. Being And being relatable matters. You can you can inspire people when they can understand you. Mm-hmm. So three key ideas. And there are a lot of key, it's 47 pages. So there are a lot of ideas in in common sense, but three key ideas I really want to hit on with three quotes from the text. Number one, the government's purpose is to serve the people. Anyone who's read the, even the preamble of the constitution should understand that this idea carries weight because the first three words of the constitution are what, Mike? Please tell me you don't have to read this. (laughs) I was actually going to the declaration of independence, but then you distracted me. Um, so we, the people of the United States of America in order to form a more perfect union. Yeah. I only asked for the first three words, but yes, we yeah. the pe- <laughs> but yes, you, you That's, got the preamble. Well, I know, <laughs> but it's we, the people. And so Thomas Paine wrote about I this open now. the constitution yes, wasn't written. We the people. I can confirm that. <laughs> Thank you. Mike. the constitution <laughs> wasn't written until 1787. The articles of confederation, uh, govern this country for the first few years of its formation. So again, this is. 11 years before we the people is penned. And this idea is important to Thomas Paine. He wrote, the constitution of England is so exceedingly complex that the nation may suffer for years together without being able to discover in which part the fault lies. Some will say in one and some in another. And every political physician will advise a different medicine. The point of his context here, as, as you read more of it, is that the, the people should have a government that is simple to understand and and has a very basic purpose so that it doesn't become so complex that politicians can manipulate it. Another key concept that Thomas Paine hammered home was that having a king was simply not a good idea. He wrote, a pretty business indeed for a man to be allowed 800,000 sterling a year for and worshipped into the bargain of more worth... into the bargain contextually of being king. And he further wrote of more worth is one honest man to society and in the sight of God than all the crowned ruffians that ever lived. Thomas Paine so, grew, grew up in England. I want to remind people that he did not grow up in the colonies. He did not come to the colonies until he was about 25. Um, he grew up in England and was very familiar with what the English rule was truly like in, in, in the home country and abroad. Mm-hmm. That's a very good point. That he was, um, that he was, uh, both places were his home. So he was able to tell the difference and understand the the true flaw in the British Empire. I think, you know, it's hard to appreciate freedom when when you, when you lived it. You know that saying, or it's hard to it's hard to notice an issue when when it's, you're constantly in it. So the fact that he was able to experience both worlds and see the difference in, in the juxtaposition. It was easier for him to explain the issues with it versus someone who was native born to the colonies at the time. 
And it allowed him to really truly understand, I think, in a way that some of the founders may, they all obviously understood and believed in freedom and liberty. But Payne really understood the value that America had by having been someone that actively chose to come to America to, well, to, to get away from what Britain was. Yeah. Well, I mean, you see that with, with immigrants all the time and how they are yelling about um, how America is moving too far socialist. And it's like they understand because, you know, the the young kids who believe in socialism, like you believe it in theory, you, you never seen the application of it. And that's why Thomas Paine's like, I've seen the application of, of, of monarchy where you guys being, you know, across the pond, you're only, you're not feeling all the effects of it. And that's why I can better explain to you why the monarchy is corrupt. And to your point about the elder founding fathers, you know, they understood why freedom was important as a concept, but not actually being able to see what, um, see the see how it can get worse maybe you know, that's a way of saying that or or seeing where it can lead still being under a british colony understanding the concept versus actually experiencing um how much worse it can get under a monarchy rule there's two different things yep agreed so the last the last one i wanted to highlight was a, another concept that thomas Paine um had in common sense which is the concept that america should be the home of the free he wrote, this new world hath, hath been the asylum for, for the persecuted lovers of civil and religious liberty from every part of Europe. Hither have they fled, not from the tender embraces of the mother, but from the cruelty of the mother. And it is so far true of England that the same tyranny which drove the first emigrants from home pursues their descendants still. So he knew what America represented. America represented a second chance. It represented a chance to again, have a country that was founded on the beliefs of civil and religious liberty and the importance that that brought to it because it was unique in all the world. Europe didn't offer this. Very true, very true. So again, I know we spent a lot of time on Thomas Paine and um, I, I believe that's important because I believe Thomas Paine is one of the most important and influential members of the foundation of the country and often doesn't get talked about. And, and his, you can see just through those few quotes, the impact he had on the writing of the declaration of independence and on the constitution of the United States. So it's important to understand that as we think about moving forward and move into now the second continental Congress in June of 1776 so common sense has been circulating. The desire for uh, independence is growing. The uh, war with the crown is already ongoing because after the battles of Lexington and Concord, the fighting didn't simply stop until July 4th. There was fighting continuing at all points. The Continental Army was already formed. Uh, George Washington was already the commander in chief of the Continental Army. Um, they, they were, we were already at war with England. But at this time, we're now fighting a war with a nation we still profess to be a part of, a nation that we profess to have loyalty to. And so that, that kind of created a rub with some of the colonists that felt you had the loyalists that felt we should go back to being under English rule. You had the true revolutionaries that felt there is no way that a nation warring with itself makes sense that we should be our own nation. And the different congressional uh, uh, delegates from the different colonies 
we're starting to believe that we needed to have an official declaration of independence. We needed to officially vote to be independent from the country of, of England and, and to be part, no longer part of the British empire. So Mike, should I continue? Yeah, yeah, please, please continue. Okay, so by about the spring of 1776, April, May timeframe, colonial delegates were, from the colonies were being told to, that they were allowed to vote for independence should the matter be brought to a vote, but none were told to actually bring the matter to a vote with the exception of Virginia. Virginia's delegates were actually instructed to submit a, a formal proposal for independence. On June 7th, 1776, Richard Henry Lee submitted that proposal on, the, on behalf of the Virginia delegation. So Richard Henry Lee submitted formally to the Continental Congress the uh, proposal to vote for independence. Congress decided to postpone the official vote on the proposal until July 1st, 1776. But in the meantime, they appointed a committee to draft a declaration if the proposal should pass. That committee consisted of five men, John Adams from Massachusetts, Roger Sherman from Connecticut, Benjamin Franklin from Pennsylvania, Robert Livingston from New York, and Thomas Jefferson from Virginia. While the committee was completely responsible for drafting the declaration, um, it should be noted that the credit really largely lies with Thomas Jefferson solely. Mm -hmm. um, he, he alone penned the Declaration of Independence um, at the behest of really the rest of the delegate of the rest of the committee. The other four members, specifically Adams and Franklin, um, requested that Thomas Jefferson write the declaration and for, for the rest to simply approve because they believed he was the most eloquent among them. So that wasn't really known to the most of America until the 1790s. Up until around the mid 1790s, most Americans believed it was a collective work of the Continental Congress and not really the sole work of Thomas Jefferson. So on July 1st, 1776, the Continental Congress reconvened and on July and they began debate on that proposal from Richard Henry Lee. On July 2nd, 1776, 12 of the 13 colonies adopted Lee's resolution for independence. Um, the, now, the initial vote was only nine of the 13 colonies uh, voting for independence and debate continued because the Congress believed that independence should be a unanimous vote if they were to move forward as it affected all of the colonies. Um, New York was the sole, uh, vote, sole um, non-voter on July 2nd, but they didn't vote against uh, uh, independence. They simply abstained from the vote and said that they would move forward with what the Congress decided. So the vote was official on July 2nd, 1776. So the official day of independence, as even John Adams pointed out at the time, would be remembered in the annals of history was July 2nd, 1776. However, Obviously, we celebrate on July 4th, and we'll get to that in, in just a moment. But beginning on, beginning on that July 2nd. So, so, Jeff, if I remember correctly, um, it was moved to July 4th to match up with Will Smith's amazing movie, Independence Day. Is that correct? Uh, that is correct. Um, okay, cool. Just making sure I got my, my facts straight when I was researching. I mean, they it was changed by Congress because they believed that move, uh, separating from Britain was less important than stopping aliens. Um, and, and you could argue that it might be. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. <laughs> so, um, so our official independence was actually voted on July 2nd. And beginning immediately after that proposal was uh, approved, Congress began the process of revising and considering the Declaration of Independence that Jefferson had drafted. 
So the Congress deleted and revised roughly one fifth of the text due to various debates that happened on the floor. However, it should be noted the original preamble to the Declaration of Independence um, that all men were created equal, endowed by their creator with inalienable rights, um, and so on and so forth. That was not changed from the initial draft Jefferson wrote all the way to the draft that was actually published by the Congress. That never changed. The preamble never changed. Um, but the body of the text was changed in, by about one fifth. So at this point, I would like to make a highlight of something that as we talk about slavery and the 1619 project and the attacks on our founders by woke activists today, Thomas Jefferson being a key target amongst them um, because he was a slave owner, because he was believed to and, and very likely had relations and children with some of his slaves. Um, Thomas Jefferson gets attacked. And while he was a complex man and, and definitely not a perfect man, none of our founders were, he was a man of the times, but he was an honorable and right and, and godly man. And Jefferson, uh, in his original draft for the Declaration of Independence, had an attack on slavery penned into the text. And I will read that in a moment. But first, let's talk about why that was taken out. So, Mike, would you like to provide any context or would you like me to continue? Oh, keep going. Keep going. This is so the, the attack on slavery was taken out largely due to um, two things. One, it was believed that it, it separated too much from the message of independence um, from the British crown. And two, uh, because it was a, a still just as it was during um, the constitutional, rat the ratification of the constitution leading to the three-fifths compromise, just like it was a hot button issue all the way up to the civil war. Um, it was an issue that many congressional delegates from the various Southern colonies were not approved to, uh, did not want to move forward with anything that would potentially put slavery at risk. And so while the statement by the, the writers of the 1619 Project, specifically Nicole Hannah-Jones, um, that slavery was important to the colonists, that is a factual statement. It was not the genesis of the revolution. And that is where her thesis fails. Um, but it is important to note that the original text uh, written by Jefferson, a man who's often attacked un, uh, unceremoniously and with and undeservingly, uh, he actually did have a, a uh, attack on slavery in the text. And so I'll read that now. Yeah, it said, and this is referring to the King of England because this is in the body of the text when he's airing the grievances or against the against the king. Um, so yeah, so if you do that, I'll, I'll read from um, Nicole's article. Okay, perfect. The differences. So this is in the body of the text for everyone to understand what he's coming off of. So the he referenced here is the king of, uh, king of England. He says, he has waged cruel war against human nature itself, violating its most sacred rights of life and liberty in the persons of a, dis in the persons of a distant people who never offended him, captivating and carrying them into slavery in another hemisphere or to incur miserable death in their transportation thither. This piratical warfare the opprobrium, I can't even say that word, the opprobrium of infidel powers is the warfare of the Christian great king of Great Britain. Determined to keep open a market where men should be bought and sold, he has prostituted his negative for oppressing, for suppressing every legislative attempt to prohibit or restrain this exert, 
execrable commerce. Some of these words are much harder to read when you have a dry mouth. And that this assemblage of horrors might, might want no fact of distinguishable dye. He is now exciting those very people to rise in arms among us and to purchase that liberty of which he has deprived them by murdering the people on whom he has obtruded them, thus paying off former crimes committed against the liberties of one people with crimes he urges them to commit against the lives of another. And that he's also referring to the fact that the British were actively trying to get slaves to um, rise up and kill Southern slave owners um, to put down the rebellion. Yeah. So thank you for that. So then from what Nicole wrote from the idea of America, she said, conveniently left out of our founding mythology is the fact that one of our, one of the primary reasons the colonists decided to declare their independence from Britain was because they wanted to protect the institution of slavery. By 1776, Britain had grown deeply conflicted over its role in the barbaric institution that had reshaped the Western hemisphere. She goes on to say, we may never have revolted against Britain if the founders had not understood that slavery empowered them to do so, nor if they had not believed that independence was required in order to ensure that slavery would continue. So she makes that statement and you know she's, she's connecting to like the, the Somerset and Stewart case that I talked about in 1772. But what's interesting is we have the Somerset and Stewart case in 1772 which didn't free the slaves. However, um, we already start to see slaves or states gradually abolishing slavery as soon as um, 1777 with the Republic of, of Vermont. Um, then we have New Hampshire and Massachusetts in 1783, Rhode Island in 1784, and sorry, I skipped one, Pennsylvania in 1780. So it's, it's funny that she says had we never broken free from Britain, we would never be free, but slavery starts to get reduced the, the next year in the, what is America now at this point. Yeah, she, act, she actively ignores the fact that even at the founding of this country, slavery was a contentious issue. And yes, there were founders that were um, in favor of, of slavery. There were signers of the Declaration of Independence that were in favor of slavery, hence it being stricken from the Declaration. However, even at the time, it was an issue that was widely debated and, and a contentious issue in the founding of this country. It was no less contentious in America than it was in Britain, which is why it took 60 years for Britain to abolish slavery and slightly more for the United States. But in most of the United States, slavery was abolished well before the Emancipation Proclamation. Yes, very true. You also have to keep in mind that the Civil War was fought because half the country was free and half the country wasn't. Um, so it's weird that people forget that. Like there, like you said, there was contention, um, but it wasn't everyone just believed in slavery. It was literally a line that separated um, free states from, from slave states. You know, and by 1861, I mean, we can get into the Civil War later, but when this, uh, it started off, there were more free slates, free states than slave states um, at 19 to 15. Plus, most of the, the Northwest Territory was also free. Actually, all of the Northwest Territory was also free. That's correct. And most and most states were not being allowed to join the Union unless they were free states when they joined. Yes, yes, very true. So it's. 
was, while I was thinking about this and thinking about um, um, Britain becoming free, it, it occurred to me that if America had stayed under British control and they still had the, the slavery, um, the, the colonies uh, or half the colonies still pushing for slavery, I wonder if slavery would have stayed longer in the British um, system. More than likely it would have because Brit because the imports of, of American crops to Britain were a substantially, substantially important to the empire, which is one of the reasons they did not, I mean, they obviously didn't want us to become free because that's how, not how empires work, but it's also right. because of the massive wealth that America brought to the empire. And if, if in order to continue to reap the benefits of that wealth, they needed to continue to allow slavery, I believe fully that Britain would have done so because parliament was not driven by um, a moral imperative <laughs> to, uh, to get rid of slavery at the right. time. Right. So I think if I remember correctly, it was actually driven by the, um, there was a revolt in Jamaica that actually kind of triggered Britain to um, free slaves. That's correct. And the Caribbean became a hotbed of, of uh, revolt for them and became an issue for them as well. So, you know, like I, I agree with you, had we stayed a British colony, uh, the whole concept of what Nicole Hannah-Jones wants to lay out would not have worked because we would have likely still been allowed to have slaves um, as a British colony. Mm -hmm. So what she says is the complete opposite of reality. It is. So we're trying and, to get at. Yep, it, it is completely. And for those who attack Thomas Jefferson because he was a slave owner, yes, he was. And yes, he actively was against slavery, but was a slave owner because he was a man of his times. And you can disagree with that all you want, um, but it doesn't change factual history. So it's important to realize some of the things that he wrote in his own hand without the urging of others um, because of his actual beliefs. So wanted yeah. to highlight that about Jefferson for those who choose to attack him. So well, it's, it's unfortunate that people don't want to take into account the, the, the history that you're talking about and what's go been going on at, at the time. You know, we talked about how Obama was going to get um, destroyed for his um, his stance against gay marriage and him being the deporter in chief. And it's like, you know, <laughs> that's how everyone was in 2008. It wasn't a um, a Democrat or Republican thing. It was a, an American thing to be against um, illegal immigration. Exactly. And that's so it, it, revisionist history doesn't work for anyone at any time period. So uh, whether it's Obama, who I, I believe by 20 years from now, we viewed very negatively by the left. Um, JFK well, it was already started, JFK though. is viewed negatively by the left. He is because um, JFK would be a Republican now based off his stances. But they've already started with Obama because they, they, they changed the school in Chicago. Um, they got it to not be named under Obama. That's right. It was a, a school that was going to have a, a huge Latin uh, community. And it's like, he was a deporter in chief. It's stupid for us to be named after him. Yep. All right. So back to our history and then we'll move along. So now we're at July 2nd, 1776. They've begun to discuss the draft of the Declaration of Independence. Two days later, the final draft is written and approved. And July 4th, 1776, our Independence Day, Congress officially adopts the Declaration of Independence. However... Uh, piece of trivia for everyone that was not signed until august 2nd of 1776 
The Declaration of Independence was adopted on July 4th and was printed by John Dunlap in a large broadside, uh, which was essentially like a uh, large... Um, animal skin? Like... Um, I don't remember if it's animal skin or not, but it's essentially like a large one page newspaper type thing, like um, poster poster, I guess you'd call it um, to be distributed to colonial assemblies. And, and it was given to uh, parts of the continental army. It's believed there were about 200 copies of the Dunlap broadside that were printed, but only about 25 are still known to exist today. Um, so if you have one of those, it's worth an insane amount of money. It's and they contained the full text of the Declaration of Independence, but without any signatures, because again, it had not been signed yet. And it was uh, with the note signed in by order and in behalf of Congress, John, uh, John Hancock, president, attest Charles Thompson, secretary. So on July 9th, New York changed its vote and voted officially for independence. Say, so on July 9th, it was unanimous. The colonies had voted for independence. On July 19th, Congress ordered an official copy of the Declaration of Independence to be fairly engrossed. What that means is essentially written out in large handwriting, the way you've seen it if you go to the National Archive in Washington, D.C., the way you, or if you buy a fake printing of it. Um, fairly engrossed is what they, so, um, and they wanted that so that everyone can sign it. And do you know who actually did the writing of that um, copy that everyone sees today? Trivia question for you, Mike. Was it John Hancock or was he just the first signature? John Hancock was the first and largest signature. And we'll talk about why in a moment. But um, do you know who wrote out the declaration? I'm not sure. Question, who was the one that they were worried that would write a prank or something uh, on the Declaration of Independence? There uh, was someone that was like known for like pranking. That like I'm not worried. sure of. So you'll have okay. to look that up and throw that trivia to me because I do not know the answer to that question. So answer to the trivia question of who hand wrote the Declaration of Independence we've seen today, for anyone listening, is Timothy Matlack. He was an assistant to Charles Thompson, the Secretary of the Continental Congress. Um, so Timothy Matlack actually wrote out that copy. And on August 7, 2nd, 1776, the document was signed first by John Hancock, the President of the Congress, and also one of the richest men in the colonies at the time. Um, and while it was a big deal to sign, it was not a jubilant uh, activity. Um, all of the men uh, signing the constitution understood the weight or signing the declaration understood the weight and gravity of the situation because they were all in essence committing high treason against the crown. Um, so had their, had the war failed, their risk was extremely large because it was public knowledge who would sign the declaration of independence. And they would, they had essentially signed their death warrants with the King. Um, so it should be noted as well that not all of the men at the July 4th vote signed the declaration on August 2nd. It's believed, and it's also believed that seven of the signatures on the, on the declaration of independence of the total 56 were added later um, by men who were at the vote, but didn't get to sign on August 2nd for other reasons. Additionally, two of the men that voted for independence um, or that were at the, the August 2nd meeting did not sign. Uh, one was John Dickinson, who was personally opposed to independence. And another was Robert Livingston, who you'll recall was one of the five men on the committee to draft the declaration. Um, and he was in New York at the time of the signing and then chose not to sign later. Mm -hmm. um, 
and, and again, it was actually all of the declaration signers were made public in January, 1777. And when their names were printed alongside an additional broadside of the declaration of independence in Baltimore, Maryland. So all of these men had openly and willfully committed treason against the crown. If the war effort had failed, they would have all been, uh, would have all been hanged or drawn and quartered for treason. Yeah. So I, I looked it up. Um, what it was is that, um, apparently the Continental Congress asked Tom Jefferson to write the first draft of the Declaration of Independence because they were afraid that Benjamin Franklin was sneaking like um, jokes or pranks. Interesting. I did not know that. Mm-hmm. So there you have it for uh, ladies and gentlemen, the true history of the birth of this country and the Declaration of the Ind- of Independence and its signing on not July 4th, but August 2nd, 1776. And the vote for independence also not on July 4th, but on July 2nd, 1776. So as you celebrate this weekend or in the future, the founding of this great nation, remember those dates because they often get mis- uh, they often get overlooked um, for their significance. July 4th and the adoption of the Declaration of Independence is and always will be an, an extremely important date in American history. But, li- but July 2nd is the date we officially became independent. And August 2nd is the date that document was signed. So let's shift gears a little bit, Mike. No more 1619, no more history lesson about the birth of the nation. But let's shift gears to another um, item that we want to make a probably running theme of this special every year. We won't always talk about all the stuff we just talked about. You'll be able to refer back to this episode if you want that history lesson. But one thing one thing we do want to continue to do is talk about the unsung heroes of the revolution. And those unsung heroes, I have a few that I want to talk about. And Mike, I don't know if you have any of your own, but we'll have a little bit of chat about those. And we do have a nerd topic of the week. Um, that is specific to America because uh, we always do a nerd topic. Um, and our topic on American exceptionalism, we've kind of talked a little bit about it, but we will save that for next year's special and for subsequent events. So the first, the first hero I want to talk about, Mike, is Patrick Henry. Mm-hmm. And some of you may know Patrick Henry. He's the man who... Uh, famously gave the speech that ended in give me liberty or give me death. Um, and actually I, I've got the full quote for everyone who, if uh, for everyone to hear um, from that speech he said, gentlemen may cry peace, peace, but there is no peace. The war is actually begun. The next gale that sweeps the, from the North will bring to our ears, the clash of resounding arms. Our brethren are already in the field. Why stand we here idle? Is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, almighty God. I know not what what course of others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. Now, this, this quote is debatable because there is no documented evidence. There's no transcript of the speech and Henry spoke without any notes, but he was a a uh, prolific speaker and, and a rousing speaker in Virginia at the time. And historians believe that that speech, um, which some of our greatest founders were in attendance of, George Washington and Thomas Jefferson being two, 
um, was one of the most influential in the war effort and actually led men like Washington to begin preparing troops in Virginia for war. Um, this speech was also uh, predated the battles of Lexington and Concord and was really instrumental again in rousing people to finally standing up to redcoat occupation. It, so it should also be noted that Henry was, while he was a strong advocate for independence, was a strong anti-federalist later in life, um, deeply uh, uh, opposed to the ratification of the constitution. And um, while that effort clearly did not succeed, some of his anti-federalist work was greatly beneficial to this country um, as a lot of his ideas became the foundation for the Bill of Rights. Mm -hmm. So he's a man that many of you have heard his quotes. Many of you may have even heard his name, but he's an, I would call him an unsung hero of the revolution. All right, Mike, you want to turn or should I keep going? Yeah, I'll no, keep going. All right. So Mike laughed about this one because of one of the notes he saw in my notes. Uh, this is my personal favorite, which I had a note in there about, and he's right. I don't know why I put that because it's not like I'm going to forget, but Francis Marion, otherwise known as the Swamp Fox. Uh, this is a man that um, I, I have been a, a very big fan of Francis Marion since I was a little, little kid because uh, dating back to about the 1960s, Walt Disney used to do things um, Walt Disney presents and he would do things about different figures in American history. And there's a multi episode special about the Swamp Fox. I think it takes about four hours. I don't, if I recall, um, and it stars uh, Leslie Nielsen and it's, I watched it when I was a little kid. Somehow I saw it on the Disney channel really late at night and I've always been a fan of it and, um, can't find it anywhere to buy. I think the only place I found it was like a hundred bucks might have to pay it, but it's about the Swamp Fox and the Swamp Fox was he was a, uh, a captain in the South Carolina Continental Militia um, that later attained the rank of Brigadier General. But Francis Marion had fought in the, uh, in the campaign against the Cherokees, uh, the Cherokee Indians during the French and Indian War. And he is also the inspiration for Mel Gibson's movie, The Patriot from, uh, from 2000, um, starring Mel Gibson and Heath Ledger. Mel Gibson's character is very, uh, very directly based on Francis Marion with some other um, people thrown in there as well. But what he's really known for is leading his militia in South Carolina in guerrilla warfare against the British. And he became uh, both a very big thorn in the side of the British and uh, someone that they feared because they never knew when the Swamp Fox would strike and or where he would come from. Um, because he had noticed in fighting the Cherokee Indians about 20 years prior that they used the landscape and, to their advantage and, and regularly used ambushes. Um, and it had made fighting uh, a superior military in the colonial army um, very easy for the Cherokee. And, and they had been able to fight larger numbers with fewer. And mm -hmm. in, in, when the roles were reversed and Francis Marion was leading his uh, militia in South Carolina, um, he noticed that to fight the British in a traditional style would not work. And so he started to take the tactics of the Cherokee Indians and used the swamps and uh, terrain for his advantage. And it was really one of the first applications of guerrilla warfare in the Americas. Um, so he's one of the most, again, one of the most 
important heroes of the revolution because of some of the significant battles that happened in South Carolina and um, the fact that he was able to slow down the British military. And because of the way he, he was attacking them, they had to split their forces and weaken themselves, uh, which led to them losing battles in places like Cowpens, which was another a uh, significant battle led by my next uh, significant hero, Daniel Morgan, a brigadier general in uh, the Continental Army who had been injured in uh, the Battle of Camden, um, but actually in the Battle of, Ca uh, came back and led the forces in the Battle of Calpens in South Carolina, which was a really critical and unexpected victory for the Continental Army. It was one that we were not supposed to win and it slowed down Cornwallis in, in uh, receiving uh, reinforcements further along, uh, further up uh, in Virginia and elsewhere. And it really uh, led to, was one of the battles that led to the victory of the colonists. Um, so these two men, Francis Marion and Daniel Morgan, were, you don't hear a lot about them. You, you hear about George Washington and others, rightfully so, but their significant military victories helped to win the war. Wasn't um, Daniel Morgan the, wasn't he like whipped like 500 times? 499 lashes. Yes. Uh, okay. That's so um, that's funny that you, that you mentioned that and that, you know, that and that's something that, um, that people don't necessarily think about either, but he survived what is typically, what was typically considered a death sentence um, in terms of his uh, punishment. Um he, he grew up on the frontier and during, um, during the French and Indian wars, he was serving in the military and he was lashed 499 times for striking an officer. Um, and that was typically considered, a, as I said, a death sentence. You didn't normally live through that, but he lived through that and, and became a, uh, a very influential and, and uh, important general in the Continental Army. Yeah, let's just say from that he had a, a, a little chip on his shoulder against the British. <laughs> yes, uh, maybe maybe a little bit. A little bit, a little bit. So yeah, good good uh, good notice on that. That's what I'm here for. So Mike, do you have any heroes you'd like to share with us? I have one last one uh, that I think is just a, a cool story, but um, it really depends on if you have anything you'd like to anyone you'd like to mention um not anyone specifically but there was um i think they're called it was like molly pitcher but it's like all like the wives that like follow their husbands into war like people think of the war it's just like a all men thing but they would like go to war and like nurse the men and, and bring them. some even like fought when their husbands dropped so i just thought that was pretty cool Molly Pitcher is, is one that almost made my list actually. So yeah, Molly right. Pitcher is, is a really big, and again, um, very few people know the name, but very important in the um, war effort. And the last mm -hmm. one I'll mention is a man named Samuel Whitmore. So he'd been uh, kind of a war hero during the French and Indians, uh, Indian Wars. And um, by the time of the battles of Lexington and Concord, he was 78 years old and was, was a farmer. And he was a avid uh, believer in independence and a hater of the British. And as, as the British were fleeing from Lexington and Concord back to Boston, um, they crossed his land. And at that time, he saw them, not knowing obviously about the battles that had taken place, but simply disliking the Redcoats. Um, and <laughs> he 
picked up his musket and fired and killed a man. And then used his pistols and killed another and mortally wounded a third. By the time he was uh, trying to reload his, mortal, uh, his, his musket after killing or wounding the third man, the British uh, made it to him um, behind the stone wall that he was hiding behind um, and firing at them from. And they shot him in the face and bayoneted him a number of times. The number's not exactly known. Um, and he was left to die in a pool of his own blood. I feel, and, like, I feel like one is, is, a, is a lot. So, so, <laughs> so anything above one is an extreme amount of, of, of bayoneting. Yeah, so it was, it was definitely more than one. Uh, and he was shot in the face as well by a musket ball. And he was left to die in a pool of his own blood. And hours later, when, uh, when uh, colonial militiamen found him, he was in his own blood trying to reload his musket so he could get up and chase the British down to resume the fight. Uh, he ultimately was treated for his wounds and lived another 18 years after that uh, skirmish and um, was a, got to see the foundation, the formation of the country and even see the, the ratification of the constitution take place before he, before he passed. Um, yeah, he sounds like a guy that's just too stubborn to die. That is exactly what it sounds like. Um, so he died at 96 years old. Yeah. That's, um, that's old for today. Mind you, uh, all the advancements we made in medicine. Yeah, especially old in 1770s or in the 1700s. Um, so while his while his contributions to the war effort weren't hugely significant in a battle or anything like that, he's just a man that is really cool to talk about. Samuel Whitmore, someone that Clint Eastwood Clint Eastwood should play before he passes away. What's funny is I pictured Clint Eastwood as I was thinking about it. So that's good. <laughs> that's perfect. So those are just a few unsung heroes of the American Revolution, people you may not have heard of, people that are worth looking up, um, that don't get the credit that they deserve for fighting the battle that made this country the, way, uh, the nation that it is. Mike, any last heroes you'd like to share before we kind of jump to our uh, nerd topic of the week and then wrap things up? Um, no, I, I didn't have any plans. So Molly Pish was just the first one that was off the top of my head. No, that's perfect. So... Listeners, we hope you enjoyed our history lesson. If you didn't, we apologize, but we enjoyed doing it. So we hope you enjoyed hearing the true history of the American Revolution um, and, and up to 1776. Obviously, there's maybe next year we'll get into the actual battles that shaped the war, um, but there's a lot we could talk about. We'll be doing this special again next year. But before we wrap things up, as always, we'd like to do our nerd topic of the week. Well, and so Jeff, I, I have one question for you before you hop into that. Okay. So... Do you feel that in 1776 America was founded or do you feel it was after the Civil War? And the reason I ask that is because in 1776, we were the United States, but the United was um, lowercase. And I feel like it wasn't until after the Civil War, well, we actually became a nation instead of a, a group of states. So I was wondering your thoughts since we were talking about the 1619 Project. Maybe, <laughs> So that's an interest. That's, just, so that's an interesting. No, that's an interesting thought. I do believe that that the Revolutionary War we we truly became a nation. I will agree with you that the Union wasn't the Union mm. until after okay. the Civil War. However, in some ways, I would say that's a negative. Uh, that that the Civil War ha um, made us more united. And in the in the way I'll say that is this, and this will be a tease for a future conversation, perhaps, is one of the foundational elements of federalism was the power of the states. 
Um, mm -hmm. And the, the, the Civil War was fought for many reasons, but chief amongst them was states' rights. And unfortunately, um, the one downside to the Union's victory in the Civil War was that states' rights have, ever since that time, been more and more trampled by the federal government to the point mm -hmm. where we see now the federal government holds almost all power and the states hold very little. Um, well, right, but, they're trying to like control how we vote now. Exactly. So I will say that um, I think your question is an interesting one that I haven't given a tremendous amount of thought to before. Um, I do believe that the Revolutionary War is the true birth of this country because it's the time at which this nation started to differentiate itself from the rest of the world. We had, we were no longer, there was no king. We had a, uh, uh, a nation founded on different principles and different ideals than anyone else. Um, but you could also argue that the true birth of the country was when the constitution was written because after the war, we were governed by the articles of confederation for a period of time, which failed and didn't work. Um, so it, there's definitely, you could definitely look at a few different points as our birth, um, I view 1776 as that birth for, for some key reasons, but I, I like your question. I'm going to give it some more thought because I think it's an interesting and worthwhile discussion to have. And again, there are downsides to the union, the union becoming stronger after the civil war that we're seeing in today's society with the power the federal government now has. Very true. Very true. So cool. Maybe, maybe we'll do a follow-up um, next week on uh, Jeff's answer. I think, I think he's thought about it. Yeah, I'll give it some thought and I'll definitely follow up next week because I hadn't really thought about it in, in that context until you asked the question. It's an interesting question. I like that. Thank you. I think weird. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So in honor of Independence Day, our nerd topic of the week could be nothing other than Independence Day, but the film with Will Smith. Yeah. So when I, when I asked about Independence Day earlier, I was, it was a tease of the nerd topic. It was for, for for people wondering why I decided to take this historically accurate podcast and talk about Will Smith randomly. So, so Mike, I guess in terms of a review of a twenty year old movie, maybe a little bit old. It came out in the nineties. It was uh, ninety six, I believe, off the top of my head. Yeah, it was 1996. That's correct. So it's a, what, 25-year-old movie? I was going to say, I was actually, it was off the top of my head. A lot of times I'm like Googling stuff as we're talking, but that was actually off the top of my head. Well, well done. So it's what, a 20, it's a 25-year-old movie. So um, in terms of review, how many stars would you give this movie, Mike? It's not like we have to be spoiler-free for a movie that is probably as old as most of our listeners. Very true. Um, I think it was a... It's a perfect movie to watch on Independence Day. It's a perfect summer um, film. I guess I don't think it's going to win any Oscars, but I love the movie. I thought it was great. It was, it was a great combination of comedy and action, in my yeah, opinion. It's, this movie, to me, sums up the perfection of 90s blockbuster cinema. Because I don't think there's great blockbuster cinema anymore. Um, there, you don't get spectacles like that in the cinema anymore. I actually... I broke with my own desire not to see the John Cena flick of Fast 9 recently because I had nothing else to do and I went and saw it in theaters. Um, and it was a great popcorn flick like you don't get anymore. But Independence Day is from that era when movies were just made for fun. It's funny, action, okay plot, no real character development, not Mess a whole needed. lot of focus on making something that makes a whole lot of sense. It was just good. No, it was a no message, really. 
Yeah, it was. Yeah, as there's no preaching to you at all. It's just a fun. This dude's gonna go kill aliens. This other dude is a computer programmer who gets stupid ideas while drinking. Like so. Oh, a cold. We'll give it a call. Like it's just dumb stuff. But it had one of the coolest aliens that had ever been on screen up to that point. Very true. Um, Very that, true. The alien in Independence Day, I think, looks better than Predator. Looks better than Alien. Looks better than anything I can think of up to the '90s. Um. um. It looks better than Predator. I would say Alien was great for the time it came out in. Alien, Alien was. Alien is a good horror movie, Alien, which is what Alien is. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I do agree that Predator could have looked better. But I loved I loved the Alien Independence Day. Um, it, had, it had a cool look. The movie had a pretty good cast. Jeff Goldblum was at the height of his popularity. Will Smith was at was really rising as a star this movie yeah, he was propelled him to stardom yeah because before that he was just doing the fresh prince of bel-air yeah so this movie he wasn't really considered to, a, an actor at that point now this movie made him a, a huge hollywood star um, yeah i think this is the movie that helped to take down tom cruise as the action star of the 90s and early 2000s yeah i would agree with that because prior to this, I mean, there wasn't really anybody that could compete with Tom Cruise. It was all the early Mission Impossible stuff and things like that. Um, you know, so it was it was a great vehicle for Will Smith to kind of start his career. The comedy in it was funny. The 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 spaceship was actually like all of the effects were pretty good. They actually stand up today mm-hmm. um, for the most part. And even the even the B plot of the movie with the B characters like um, uh, Randy Quaid. Oh, like the yeah, the crop duster. Yeah, like even those characters were actually entertaining. They're interesting, and they like you care about what's and, going on with them. Yeah, and they're actually were important to the plot. Yeah, and and the way they beat the aliens was cool. I like and and the concept of the movie, like Bill Pullman as the president, and he gives his Independence Day speech. That's a really cool scene. Mm-hmm. A, a really great speech. So yeah, I. It's a it's a great movie. Um, I wish the sequel was uh, was better. Like was it, even halfway decent. I think we've lost Mike at the uh, least opportune time, but maybe it's okay because we're about to wrap up. So yeah, I wish the sequel had been better, as Mike had said. But Independence Day, if you're looking for something to do while you're out barbecuing, uh, Independence Day is a great movie to watch. We hope you enjoyed our Independence Day special and our. Uh, brief history lesson on the true birth of this nation and the juxtaposition of the lies that are being spread today. We hope that this is something that you'll um, continue to think about and continue to like as we do it in the future. So we'll be back next week, back on our regular recording schedule. Thank you all for listening and happy Independence Day. God bless America and God bless all of you.